ETF Prime is hosted by Nate Geracine, president of investment advisory firm, The ETF Store. This program is for informational purposes only and does not constitute investment advice. Investing in ETFs involves risk, including potential loss of principal. Any past performance figures discussed are not necessarily indicative of future results. The ETF store is not affiliated with ETF Trends and ETF Database or any of its affiliates. ETF Trends and ETF Database participation in this program should not be construed as an endorsement or an indication by ETF Trends and ETF Database of the value of any ETF store product or service. Visit ETFstore.com for more information. Now it's time for ETF Prime, where we discuss everything you need to know about exchange-traded funds and the world of investing. Whether you're an investing expert or just starting out, Nate will help you get up to date with what's happening on Wall Street and show you how exchange-traded funds can help lower your investment costs, reduce your tax bill, and allow you to take advantage of investment opportunities around the world. And now, the host of ETF Prime, Nate Geraci. All right, great show. I want to thank Goldman Sachs Asset Management, one of our sponsors this week. Joining me will be Ben Levine, Co-Chief Investment Officer at 3DL Capital Management, who they provide model portfolios primarily to financial advisors. Uh, they currently manage about $850 million within those models. They're big users of ETFs. Ben is absolutely what you would call an ETF strategist. And I always love visiting with ETF strategists because A, they tend to know every single ETF out there. They like turning over every rock looking for the best ETFs. And I'm always amazed at what they find. It's not typically a bunch of plain vanilla ETFs. And then B, they usually have a pretty interesting view of the markets. Their, their job is to manage portfolios on behalf of advisors, so they tend to have some conviction in terms of how they approach the markets. Again, it's not usually just a plain vanilla set it and forget it. So this will be interesting. We'll talk about how Ben selects ETFs, his overall due diligence process. We'll look at a couple of the 3DL model portfolios and the ETFs they hold. And then we will also touch on the market. So really looking forward to that conversation. Also joining me will be Wes Fulford, CEO of Veridi Funds, who back in July, they launched the Veridi Cleaner Energy Crypto Mining and Semiconductor ETF, ticker RIGS, R-I-G-Z. Uh, in a nutshell, this is an ESG blockchain ETF. This seeks to own clean energy crypto mining companies. It can also hold semiconductors and some other companies involved with crypto mining. But this has been a hot button topic, the environmental impact of crypto mining. There's a lot of debate here. How big of an issue is this? And Wes was uh, previously CEO of BitFarms, who's a large publicly traded crypto mining company that leaned heavily on renewable energy. So I'm really interested to hear from him on this overall uh, debate. And we'll, of course, dive into that ETF as well. It's actively managed. Now, to start this week, I have ETF Trends. Dave Nottig on the line with me from Massachusetts. We are going to look at some recent ETF filings and launches. Yes, including the ARC Transparency ETF filing from last week. Now we're joined by the experts at ETF Trends and ETF Database, the world's largest independent ETF-centric source for top industry news, trends, and insights. By keeping rates so low, that is in effect driving investor money into the equity market. They're not just telling you what positions they've got, they're telling you precisely what trades they've made. It's a little bit of a who's who of the corporate bond space. Dave, how was the long weekend for you? Oh, it was great. I spent all of it looking at NFTs. <laughs> uh, yeah, you and me both, we can't get away from that topic. I saw you wrote a fantastic piece uh, over the weekend, which I highly recommend everybody check that out. We're not talking about that this week, but uh, you really enough, did a full no, deep dive. Of it. Let's, get on, let's get back to the <laughs> ETF world, shall we? All right. Well, look, you know, one of my favorite things to do when you're on the podcast is just to get your hot take on recent ETF filings and launches. And so what I did over the weekend, I did watch a lot of college football, but I also looked at the <laughs> list of filings and launches over about the past month or so, and I picked out ones catching my attention. So let's just go through these. And the first one is the obvious one that I just mentioned. This has already received a ton of attention. 
the ART Transparency ETF. This was filed for last Tuesday. Uh, it will hold approximately 100 companies receiving high scores for transparency based on a proprietary scoring methodology developed by the index provider Transparency LLC, which uh, I, I should note, they have a very interesting website you can go to. But, but Dave, look, I was surprised that Number one, this ETF will be index-based. It's not active. You're not getting Kathy Wood here. And then two, to me, this just seemed to go against ARC's branding a little. So I know they're big on touting transparency, but I feel like they've really hung their hat on disruptive innovation. And I look at this ETF. This is an index-based ESG ETF. That seems kind of boring to me. And not only that, I'll also add that some of the companies ARC would exclude in this ETF they're actually core holdings in other ARC ETFs. So a company like DraftKings comes to mind. And, and look, I know plenty of other ETF issuers do that, but, but this just felt off to me for some reason. So what did you think about this filing? I, I'm actually much, I think, uh, much more pleased with this. I mean, first of all, it doesn't surprise me at all that it is uh, an, a passively managed product, an index-based product, right? They already do that on some of their other funds. We don't talk about them all that much, but things like the 3D printing ETF, right, that is a passively managed fund tied to an index. So that doesn't surprise me all that much. And, and I think I would actually expect them to continue to launch what I would call unique betas, if we're going to use that phrase, uh, where they think there's an opportunity. So that part doesn't surprise me. When we get down under the hood, you know, you're right that I think transparency is probably the value that ARC has talked the most about over the last however many years, right? That is the thing that they almost require in order to even consider talking to a company, right? They need to understand what's going on under the hood. So they spend a lot of time reading those fundamental documents that, frankly, very few people left on the street do. So they value transparency sort of at the face of the coal mine in an interesting way. So I think it makes a ton of sense. I think it's an, it's an interesting test case about whether you consider this ESG. I mean, Nate, do you consider this an ESG fund? I go back and forth because, you know, look, obviously transparency, I would say that is a cornerstone of an ESG approach. But Dave, I mean, I think you you know my overall sentiment on ESG. I look at a company like, let's take Tesla, which would be in this transparency ETF if it launched today. I think you would get a lot of people arguing about how transparent Tesla is. And you look at some of the underlying methodology of this indexes uh, or this index, whether or not companies have legal proceedings and, and some of the other factors. I just, uh, you know, ESG is a tough topic for me for me overall. So I, I don't know. I will say I thought it was interesting that ESG is not in the name of this ETF. And I'm sure you saw last week, the SEC, uh, they announced that they're considering a lot more disclosure around ESG funds, right? The methodology and data where fund companies would have to justify why they're using the ESG label. And part of me wondered whether that's why you don't see ESG in the yeah. name of, of the uh, ARC ETF. Absolutely. And if this was labeled ESG, I would be extraordinarily critical of it. Because like, what, what in the methodology would make you think that there's a particular environmental thing uh, you know, environmental benefit that is happening by investing in this pool of companies. There really isn't. That's not the point of it. So I, I actually applaud them for naming it so clearly what it is. Now, whether or not that's a good investment thesis, whether removing, you know, alcohol and candy makers and fossil fuel and gambling and, you know, the, the rather odd list of exclusions they have here, whether that is a great investment thesis or not, I think, you know, that that's a much, much bigger question and one we're not going to resolve here. But I applaud them for doing something as clean and simple as this. I suspect that, that as they get closer to actually launching this fund and we start really understanding sort of why this particular tilt at the methodology is the one that they went with, then I think we'll be in a, in, you know, a, a better position to really evaluate it as an investment strategy. But right now, I think it's great. Now, one thing that I will say, I do think it's a no-brainer for ARC to launch more products, right? You, you look yeah, at the success they've sure. had. I, I mean, the space ETF they launched earlier this year, that ETF already has like $650 million in it at 75 basis points. That's not bad. And it's not like the space segment is some huge market yet. So I, I do think ARC launching more products makes a ton of sense. Again, to me, this transparency ETF just felt off 
for some reason, though I, I will say it's entirely possible I'm just fatigued on ESG ETFs. I, I think it's just I think it's just very unique, right? I think it, there is nothing like it, and and its exclusions. You know, I think we all, we can all look at them and create a story about why these things are excluded, right? They're kind of natural thin stocks and most ETF ESG methodologies. Um, but I, I dig the fact that they picked this one thing, transparency, and are really focused on that. Okay, another filing that's already creating a decent amount of buzz, the Roundhill meme ETF. So Will Hershey and, and Roundhill, they were sitting on this magical ticker symbol, right? They had meme. Uh, this will hold 25 stocks based on social media activity and high short interest. I'm curious, what did you think about this one? Do you think this meme stock phenomenon is, is here to stay? Uh, so look, I, I, I think that we are going to continue to have uh, odd names, uh, whether they are crypto names or whether they are not crypto names, that seemingly attract ridiculous amounts of money for a short periods of time. I think that is a feature of modern markets. Um, I think we're paying more attention to it now than we have in the past, but I don't think this is entirely unique. That being said, I don't believe these are really investable strategies. Uh, I, I, I'm not a huge believer in what's going on behind Buzz. People have been tilting at this windmill for a really long time. The first uh, real, real version of this I saw was way back in the 90s, right? There was a version of a, a fund that was going to track all of the raging bull recommendations and what was hot on Yahoo Finance because that's what everybody was talking about back then. Uh, I don't think those strategies worked well then. I don't think they're going to be particularly great now. Fundamentally, what you're doing is bottling up momentum. Uh, and honestly, I think momentum is a better screen uh, than whether or not something happens to be getting a ton of traffic on Reddit this week. I will say, though, that I could see this finding a retail audience. And I think round, oh, sure. I mean, uh, that doesn't mean there's not going to be a billion dollars in it. <laughs> yeah, for sure. I was just going to say, I mean, I think Roundhill's done a great job of targeting the retail audience overall. And I have to mention, I have zero inside information on anything here. I'm completely making this up. But for some reason, and I think it's probably just interactions that I saw on Twitter, part of me was expecting Roundhill to partner with uh, Ramp Capital uh, to launch an ETF. Ramp Capital on Twitter. And, I, you know, I'm thinking like a crowdsource ETF because if you follow Ramp on Twitter, he runs these uh, polls every week where he has his followers pick holdings. Imagine pairing that with the meme ticker. I think that could find an audience with retail investors. and Yeah, I, I mean, I, I have a hard time, honestly, taking any of those things seriously. <laughs> they all strike me as entertainment, not investment. That's fair. I, I just see it as that, uh, that trend of monetizing social influence using ETFs. Yeah, and, sure. you know, Ramp has a big following. Okay, while we're talking Roundhill, they also recently filed for a cannabis ETF, another great ticker symbol, weed. I, I'm, I'm telling you, Roundhill has some of the best ticker symbols out there if you look at the lineup. I'm just excited somebody's finally launching weed. I, I, I've been talking about somebody launching something with this signal for I, at least a decade. People have been joking about how weed will be the ultimate ticker symbol, so I'm excited to see it. Well, the question that I have for you, to me, at this point, cannabis seems like a tough space to break into. I mean, there's already like 10 pot ETFs on the market. At some point, there's too many, right? Yeah. Yeah, for sure. And it's a pretty uninvestable market for a lot of folks because of the regulatory situation in the United States, obviously. But um, that doesn't mean we don't still end up with plenty of, you know, viable product in the space. You know, remember, at this point in, in the ETF ecosystems life cycle, you know, you get $100 million in the fund. And if you're running a fairly lean shop or you've got some economies of scale, that's viable. So, uh, you know, do I think with the ticker weed, he can get, you know, $100 million of investment just from Robinhood investors? Probably. Well, and I've made this point before. Again, if you look at the, the 10 plus pot ETFs on the market, all of them, for the most part, are pretty healthy. They're pretty viable. Yeah, yeah. So, um, and, and there are differences, right? I mean, what MSOs is doing is very different than what, you know, TCX is doing, right? There are, there are nuances to the space and how you approach it. So I, I don't particularly have an ax to grind on how one approaches the cannabis space, but you cannot, cannot argue with the ticker. And I do think, you know, long term, this is going to be a, another one of those really interesting development growth markets, like we were talking about NFTs, right? Something interesting is going to happen there. There will be long-term winners. I think it's still very early to pick those winners. Okay, two other ETF filings I want to ask you about. The first one uh, was from just this past Friday, the RCG ETF. This would be a version of a, a Sequoia mutual fund. And I actually saw you going back and forth on Twitter on this. We don't know the fee yet, 
but the mutual fund version charges 1%. And this ETF would also be non-transparent. And I know you saw this from those Twitter uh, interactions, but I love the little formula that uh, Bloomberg's Eric Balchunas tweeted out on this. He said a 1% ant equals DOA unless BYOA, which I think that should be framed (laughs) and hung on every fund company's office. I agree. Yeah, I mean, it's going to be an uphill climb for ETFs like this, right? Yeah, I, you know, I think the challenge they have, uh, look, Sequoia is uh, absolutely, you know, name above the title brand in the space, right, in investment management. They're very storied. They've been around since, what, I think the 60s off the top of my head, right? So it is one of those brands like Magellan that just rings out in the American, you know, consciousness. That being said, recent performance hasn't just been incredible to the extent you would expect money to flow in just chasing those numbers, the current team managing Sequoia, who's also going to be managing this, is younger. It's not that story generation from 15 years ago. Um, the funds themselves can't be converted because Sequoia is in just tons and tons and tons of 401k plans. That makes a conversion difficult. So it's kind of got all these things stacked against it. Um, so I got to tell you, unless, I, unless they really do come with a distribution strategy that's really powerful and unique, which is the point Eric's getting to, right? some version of showing up with the money in hand, I think it would be a tough sell. I suspect they have the money in hand, and that's why they're launching it. Completely agree with all that. I have nothing else I can add. I, I just think with these ants that aren't doing anything much different than the broader market, especially if, you have a, if you're at a high fee, it's just going to be a real challenge for them. Yeah, though remember that having a clone of a strategy for somebody who believes in that core strategy, either through an SMA or through owning the traditional mutual fund, having a liquidity sleeve in the ETF has value. Yeah, that's fair. Okay, lastly on the filings, uh, RAISE, so the Global X Solar ETF, and this filing was actually made a while back, but I believe that this is now close to launching. This would finally give TAN some competition, the Invesco Solar ETF. My question for you is, why do you think it took so long for TAN to finally get some competition? Well, you know, part of the issue is that the solar space has been so volatile, right? Remember, for a while, TAN was one of the highest yielding ETFs in the market, because they were making so much money loaning out the underlying to short sellers because the product was just getting slammed, right? So it's, it's not a really obvious place to jump in and get lots more interest because the, the flow's been very hit or miss. Performance has been very hit or miss. It's one of those sectors that people really fall in love with and fall out of love very quickly. So I, I get that. Um, it's very niche, right? I mean, mm-hmm. only, I, as much as we say, you know, renewable energy and solar is so incredibly important, it's not like there are a thousand companies to pick from, right? It's a little bit like the cannabis space. There are really only so many ways to skin the cat. And it doesn't have quite the buzz that a broader renewable energies kind of play would, right? You're not pulling in Tesla necessarily off the top here, although I, I wouldn't be surprised if Tesla's in there because of solar roof. So you know, I think it's understandable why there's been a long time for competition to show up. I wouldn't be surprised if they have a little bit of a tough run at it. The team at Global X is obviously awesome. The product design solid. There's no issue with the product. But TAN's been around a real long time. And, and investors that really care about the spaces as traders have TAN and FAN, which is the wind version of that, stuck on their list right? Those are what are on their watch list. It's going to take a lot to push those off the watch list. Yeah, I mean, TAN is still over $3 billion in assets. It was actually up to uh, over $5 billion earlier this year. But as a point of comparison, they were at less than $500 million at the beginning of last year. Yeah. And so obviously it's, it's this move into solar. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But but I think they do have obviously that uh, they've built in the that leadership position in this space. But I, I wouldn't bet against Global X, to your point. I mean, they're, they're a distribution machine. They have the thematic game figured out. Um, okay, Dave, a few minutes left here. Let's go rapid fire through a few new launches, which, by the way, we're now over 260 new ETFs this year. I mean, big year for, for launches. The first one catching my attention, the Sonic Shares Global Shipping ETF, ticker BOAT, great ticker, and what I think is noteworthy here is the Invesco Shipping ETF, SEAC, that closed last year. Uh, do, do you think that was just bad timing? Like, do you think Boat can find an audience where we're seed in it? Boy, it's tough, right? People really want access to shipping. Um, you know, I mean, I remember we have we still have B-Dry out there, right? That's still, that's still kicking, right? The Baltic Dry. And yeah. people really, it is an interesting and incredibly important part of the global economy. 
Um, the focus on sh- on container rates, right? That's I mean, we've all seen those charts where you know it used to cost three thousand bucks to get a container from Shanghai, and now it's twelve thousand if you can even find one, right? So that is going to be an interesting and sticky part of our inflation discussion, probably for the next couple of years, right? That's been a really surprising hiccup in the global supply chain. I think that that's what this is about, right? This is about trying to capitalize on this sort of immediate interest in that. It is a global platform. It's got a lot of Japanese stocks in it. None of these are household names. I, I think very few people will know anything in this portfolio except maybe Atlas, um, and, and even that only if you've been really paying attention to the space. So I, I think it's a tough sell. I think it's one of those places that it's really important that there's an ETF that provides exposure. I hope that this is one that sticks. I'm not sanguine that it's going to have a billion dollars in a real hurry uh, unless there's some sort of catalyst event that just pops these stocks way through the roof. Um, but I, I'm super excited to see more exposure in the space. Okay, another interesting launch, the Direction Low Price Stock ETF, ticker LOPX. Uh, and I would say this has a little bit of a meme stock feel to it, so, so perhaps I know what your opinion will be. But this holds 50 stocks priced between 2 and $5. Do you like this one or no? No, it's the inverse of the Dow Jones Industrial Average problem. Right? Nobody should be basing any of their investment decisions on the price of something. They should be basing their investment decisions on the value implied by that price, right? So, uh, no, I'm not a fan of any methodology that is simply sorting stocks based on something that has nothing to do with what those companies do, how they're run, how they're managed, where their prospects are. Like, you got to have some sort of hook. And look, I get we live in a world of NFTs where, you know, value is very much in the eye of the beholder. I I just don't buy that there's a reason why $5 stocks are more valuable than $500 stocks. Okay, and then last, uh, one of the hottest trends in ETFs right now is options-based ETFs. So I think Innovator and the Defined Outcome ETFs, they really started popularizing this. And now we're seeing all sorts of option-based strategies come to market. Uh, Simplify ETFs, I think, is going to be a major player here. And GlobalX just launched several risk-managed and tail-risk ETFs. So, for example, the GlobalX S&P 500 Risk Managed Income ETF, ticker XRMI. And you can speak to the GlobalX ETFs if you want, but I'd love to hear what is driving the uh, proliferation of these strategies, these options-based strategies, because it really seems like there's a, a huge uptick now. Yeah, a couple things. You know, I think uh, the two biggest things I hear from advisors every day are, gosh, I wish I could find some income, and gosh, the market seems overvalued. Options help solve both of those problems. Uh, Now, I think things are getting painted with an awfully broad brush because they don't solve everybody's problem all the time. But it is true. You can take something like the S&P 500 and write a covered call strategy on it and extract income from it, right? Now, I think it's very reasonable for people to be skeptical about that argument and say, well, you know what, just investing in the beta and having a just, you know, a structured selling program, that counts as income too, right? Getting income out of your capital gains is not a bad thing if you do it correctly. In fact, it can be a very good thing if you're doing the timing right. So that is number one, which is the how do I get income out of something? And products, I, probably the one that really broke everybody's mind open was Newsy from mm-hmm. Nationwide, right? Which just throws off a 7% dividend, you know, month after month after month after month um, based on the NASDAQ 100 under the hood. Um, so that's part one is like getting income is very much a real thing. And that's as much a story about what's gone in the bond market and the complete unavailability of income there as it is anything else. The other side of it is risk management. People are not, you know, I I know very few financial advisors who are real happy with the P.E. ratio of anything they own right now. Everything feels expensive. It's been a long time since we've had a drawdown. It feels like there's enormous outside exogenous risks, whether it's the Mu variant or global uh, tensions in the Middle East or whether it's China. Right? It it feels as dangerous as ever. And yet we're sitting here at all time highs on almost anything you can buy. So risk management becomes an issue. That's what options are for, right? Options are fundamentally insurance. That's what people are buying for. So this this burgeoning field of taking a beta and then using options to manipulate and mold the pattern of returns you get out of it is brilliant in the sense that it's providing a real service to investors, where I think we have to be a little bit uh, you know, we have to at least put a, a critical eye on it, um, is that not all these strategies are made are created equal. Um, 
there there are real problems sometimes with putting passive structures around this because the underlying data in the options market changes so quickly that you can end up in a situation where you could have an index methodology that maybe is great for that first 15% drawdown that you managed to avoid, but boy, you don't really position very well for the 25% recovery that happens three days later or the 10% continuation down that happens three days later. It's very tricky. Uh, so I'm excited to see more of these products show up, but as with anything interesting in the ETF space, it really pays to do your homework. A hundred percent. I, you know, we always talk about how ETFs have democratized access to sophisticated institutional strategies. I think that's what's happening here, but it's a double-edged sword. It does provide that access, but there's also a lot of complexity uh, behind these products, and investors just have to understand how these work and what they're getting. But uh, Dave, yep. always fun going through these. Nobody better. Appreciate the time this week. Thank you. Oh, man. Thanks for having me, Nate. That was Dave Nodig, Chief Investment Officer and Director of Research at ETF Trends and ETF Database. With yields as low as they are today, investors seeking high current income don't have a lot of choices, especially if they don't want to expose themselves to a heightened level of risk. The Nationwide Risk Management Income ETF NUSI may be an exception. It's designed to seek high monthly income and a measure of downside protection in falling markets. NUSI, a new approach to income generation. Before investing, it's important to consider the fund's objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Call 800-617-004 for a prospectus containing this information. Read the prospectus carefully before investing. Risk includes possible principal loss. Quasar Distributors, LLC. My next guest is Ben Levine, co-chief investment officer at 3DL Capital Management, who's a third-party asset management platform. They provide portfolio management primarily to financial advisors. Currently, they have some $850 million on the platform. That's split across a full suite of model portfolios, and they are heavy users of ETFs, as we'll discuss. Uh, Ben's now on the line with me from Hartford, Connecticut. Ben, a pleasure connecting. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me. Okay, so let's start with some basics, and then we'll certainly get into ETFs and the financial markets. For people unfamiliar with TAMPs and ETF-managed portfolios, just describe how you work with clients and how they can access your models. Sure. TAMP stands for Turnkey Asset Management Platform, and we are a full-service provider for the independent financial advisory practice, whether it's an, a small RIA, registered investment advisor, or a, um, a broker-dealer representative where we have selling agreements in place with the home office. We basically provide that investment advisor uh, solution. Um, we provide a, a, a fiduciary aspect um, to managed accounts. We provide mid and back office support, whether it's reporting, uh, trading, and so forth. And we basically handle a lot of those investment-related functions so that the financial advisor, particularly those who are more um, uh, geared towards financial planning or insurance plan and so forth, can focus on other aspects of their business uh, as well as uh, be out there raising new assets and expanding their, their client books. Yeah, can you expand a little bit more on that last point? Because it's interesting. There's been a lot of talk about the growing importance of uh, ETF model portfolios as a distribution channel for ETF issuers. And I'm not sure if you saw this, but BlackRock has set a goal for half of their U.S. ETF flows to come from advisor models. They're already at about a third. And they said the model portfolio market overall is expected to grow from $4 trillion last year to $10 trillion in the next five years. Now, obviously, mm -hmm. that would be very good for your business, right? I'm assuming you agree with that overall sentiment that the model marketplace will grow. But what do you view as some of the key drivers here? Like, like expand on why the space is taking off. Well, basically, it's it's rather advisors having to build their own model portfolios, um, especially if it's um, kind of simple index beta type products just have the uh, model provider do it for them. And uh, especially if they're more strategic oriented as opposed to tactical where they don't believe in trying to tactically adjust the risk parameters or the risk profile of the model, uh, they just want to kind of set it and forget it. Why not just give it to a BlackRock uh, or Vanguard or, or State Street and have them do it for you? 
And uh, and so I think there's there's that sort of increasing popularity of just give it to the model provider, and and as long as they're sticking with like their 60/40 long-term target, um, I'm I'm fine with that. Um, and for the most part, that that can be an ideal solution for advisors, particularly for ones who don't mind, for instance, handling the trading or the reporting side of it, as long as they have the technology support to go with it. Because ultimately, these model providers, they're just sending you signals. They're not actually doing the exec- trade execution. Um, they're they're basically just communicating to you what these models are doing, what they're made of. They they may even provide commentary and and rationale for why there are changes, uh, if there are changes that are made. Um, but for advisors that are are fairly comfortable with just kind of handling sort of the mid and back office side of the investment advisor function, then then you know just receiving the model signals and executing on them, um, they're they could be largely comfortable with that. The other aspect of why. I think model uh, managed models are are increasing in popularity is because if you are kind of a rep as PM type of advisor and you feel like more of your time is better spent researching sort of more esoteric areas of the market, maybe you have an active trading strategy, maybe you like to focus on alternative investments like real estate, uh, commodities, and so forth. Why not just handle all the plain vanilla uh, asset classes uh, by ha- have the model provider handle that so that you can focus more of your investment research on uh, the areas where you feel like you're adding most value to the clients? One thing I'm curious about here, you mentioned an advisor perhaps uh, you know, going to BlackRock or Vanguard or State Street. From your perspective, does it help being independent here? You, you know, ETF issuers who have these model portfolios, they're likely going to offer their own products within those portfolios, where I would say there could potentially be a conflict of interest, right? Do, do you think that matters at all in this space? Well, I mean... Yes and no. I think ultimately it depends on what the underlying products are. Um, I think, you know, the higher fee paying products, yeah, you could potentially be introducing um, conflicts of interest and so forth. But but really, you know, for an index provider like a BlackRock, Vanguard, whoever, um, that are building model portfolios and kind of using that as a distribution channel, it's ultimately a channel into low uh, fee-paying products to begin with. And unless you start to see these model providers mix higher fee-paying strategies with lower fee-paying ones, and again, fee, fees are largely a function of whether it's a more uh, uh, difficult access area of the market, uh, such as small cap or emerging markets, uh, or if it's a traditional actively managed strategy that tends to offer higher fees. You just got to see what the mix of investments ultimately are. But I think having third-party investment management, such as what we provide, offers a, a, an independent viewpoint, a third-party independent viewpoint, not only just on you know, looking at f- uh, products from a uh, fee-comparable basis, but, but really what are the products doing? And, and maybe you don't want to necessarily have 100% of your portfolio invested in one fund provider for either fiduciary reasons or for product-fitting reasons. Maybe there are other investment products that provide a, what you think a more optimal fit uh, to the ones that you're using from a large uh, f- uh, fund provider like BlackRock or Vanguard. And and that's what we essentially bring is that third-party perspective. Yeah, so 3DL, you, you do offer a full suite of ETF model portfolios. These span from aggressive to conservative. They're income-based models, tax-managed strategies. What I thought would be interesting is to dive into a couple of these. And so I went online and, and pulled up two in particular. The first one is the 3D Global 100 ETF portfolio. This is 100% stocks and commodities, obviously for aggressive investors. And uh, bear with me. Let let me go through the holdings here because I think it really highlights how you're approaching portfolio construction. And uh, these holdings are all as of the end of Q2, so I'm not sure if anything's changed here. But the iShares Edge MSCI International Value Factor ETF, the ETFS Bloomberg All Commodity Strategy K1 Free ETF, FlexShares International Quality Dividend ETF, FlexShares Quality Dividend Defensive ETF, Goldman Sachs Active Beta International Equity ETF, JP Morgan U.S. Quality Factor ETF, KFA Value Line Dynamic Core Equity ETF, Crane Shares MSCI China All Shares ETF, Crane Shares MSCI Emerging Markets X China ETF, the Vanguard Value ETF, and then three uh, Wisdom Tree ETFs, International Small Cap Dividend, uh, U.S. Mid Cap Earnings, 
and the uh, small cap earnings ETF. So, look, a lot there, but what stood out to me in going through that is that you're not just loading up with plain vanilla Vanguard or iShares or, or State Street. So, I, I guess, talk about your overall investment philosophy, and then I'd love to hear more about your due diligence process here. How are you deciding sure. which ETFs to use for a particular asset class? So 3DL started out at, originally as a, as a dimensional fund advisors or DFA TAMP. And, and we still offer 100% DFA fund models. And in essence, what the DFA-based approach looks at is, is they look at the market through a risk-based lens. And you can look at the market through a single risk-based lens, which is beta. And if you believe that beta is ultimately the only risk that matters systematically that matters in terms of your portfolio exposures, then you would just go with a plain vanilla index fund like the S&P 500 or MSCI uh, index-based products. All any, any index-based product that weights by market capitalization is essentially a single factor or a single beta type of market capture. And, and um, and there are, you know, most, I would say, a lot of managed models pretty much just uh, provide simple beta, uh, index beta exposure. What the DFA-based approach does is it expands that market risk definition beyond just simple beta to uh, what originally was a three-factor beta, and now it's a five-factor beta based on the uh, latest research uh, done by Fama and French. But basically, it looks at the market through additional lenses, through company size or small cap versus large cap value, which is value for uh, inexpensive versus expensive stocks, um, and, and, and also, you know, the, the original market beta itself. And then more recently, they added sort of um, uh, balance sheet quality factors, uh, profitability factors, and so forth. So really what our model portfolio, the one that you mentioned, and all the ETFs that are, are captured uh, by that is essentially taking this factor-based approach, systematic risk or rules-based approach to investing, and expanding it beyond simple beta to include other factors that we believe as a firm and the academic research has shown to uh, compensate investors for uh, taking on additional risk beyond the market over the long run, whether that's small cap risk, value-focused risk. Um, there is some uh, debate as to whether dividend-focused type strategies should compensate investors over the long run. We believe that dividend paying at least over the long run constitutes, has historically constituted a large proportion of the total return that an investor can realize by being invested in equities rather, rather than uh, price appreciation or multiple expansion. So we do have dividend focus. And we also believe in diversification. Um, uh, it's... Uh, um, Global diversification is probably a harder sell today, especially when you look at over the last 10 to 15 years where U.S. Mar stock market, particularly U.S. large cap stocks, have dominated global market averages. Uh, but we do believe over the long run that investors are well served to be globally diversified. That's why we have separate allocations to international and emerging markets. And um, and so those are kind of sort of bedrock principles of risk-based investing, diversification, and and then also you know we have an additional commodity sleeve because we believe that structurally you know post-COVID we think that the commodities market is going to be trading in a net supply deficit for years to come. So we think it's prudent for investors in risk-based models to have some allocation to broad basket commodities. What are some of the key things that you are evaluating and looking at the different ETFs? Because you, as you just went through that, let's just take you know, factor-based investing as a whole, whether we're talking small caps or, or value or, or, or momentum. Um, obviously, there are a lot of ETFs covering those different segments. So what are you looking for in the due diligence process? Yeah, um, and ultimately it comes down to index construction, uh, how the provider is defining, A, defining the factor, B, how are they weighting the factor uh, within the model uh, portfolio, and um, and then, I mean, there, there are a lot of nuances underneath the surface beyond just investing in momentum or investing in value. For instance, how is the uh, model provider defining value. Um, there is debate as to what the best measure of value capture is or whether you should use multiple me metrics of value, whether it's price to earnings, price to book, price to sales, or cash flow. Um, should a dividend yield be incorporated in that? And then you know, how is the manager then um, processing that factor measure across the universe of stocks? You know, what market cap are they going down? Um, are they sector neutralizing or are they kind of leaving it um, 
lending sector be a fallout of the weightings? And then ultimately, how are they weighting the uh, stocks after they've been um, processed at the factor level? Um, you know, does capitalization take into the, that component? Um, you have some um, style indices that, that weight purely on the factor exposure, not taking into account market capitalization. Then you have other products that do a combination of the two, and then um, traditional style indices offered by the likes of S&P and Russell basically split the factor universe in half and then, in essence, then you let market capitalization be the primary determinant of weighting. So there are a lot of nuances that go into sort of how uh, these um, indexes and ultimately ETF providers that, that track these indices, how they deliver that factor premium to you. And just to give listeners an idea on another portfolio, I pulled the uh, 3D fixed income ETF portfolio. This has five holdings the First Trust Low Duration Opportunities ETF, the FlexShares High Yield Value Scored Bond Index ETF, Invesco Taxable Municipal Bond ETF, PIMCO Active Bond ETF, and the Wisdom Tree Yield Enhanced U.S. Aggregate Bond ETF. So again, you can see just interesting holdings, not plain vanilla. And Ben, I guess I would say in looking through all of your portfolio fact sheets, because again, you have numerous portfolios, you offer a global ESG equity ETF portfolio. There's a targeted equity outcome portfolio, which actually this holds uh, buffer ETFs, defined outcome ETFs. You have targeted fixed income portfolios, which can hold things like bullet shares. How do you decide on the types of portfolios to offer? Yeah, a lot of the thematic models or outcome-oriented models that we've launched in recent years have come from uh, advisor requests. The ESG model we launched almost three years ago now, and it's been one of our better performing models, came at the request of an advisor with clients who wanted their sort of more normative values uh, aligned with their investment uh, exposures and and how do you deliver something like that in a, a fund model as opposed to just building a custom SMA for the, or a single managed account for them uh, of individual stocks or individual securities and so um, you know targeted outcome was in re- request by an advisor with the book of business where they wanted the downside protection built into the product rather than it being relying upon a trading strategy. So targeted outcome delivers that buffered outcome uh, without, you know, my skill or our firm skill and being able to time the downside of the market or, or adjust the volatility of the market in the event that volatility does start to pick up. And uh, and so these are largely in response to demands that we got from the advisor in terms of you know, having more sort of tailored specific needs that aren't perhaps directly addressed by our flagship risk-based models. Ben, I feel like you know the ETF space as well as anyone. Are there uh, any areas of ETFs where you feel like the right tools don't exist yet? So as you, you know, we went through those portfolios. As you're looking to construct portfolios, you're hearing advisor demand. Are there areas where we need further innovation in ETFs? Well, I, I do think that the marketplace, at least the publicly traded portion of the marketplace of equities and fixed income and, and futures, have been largely addressed by the uh, model uh, product providers, and and now we're starting to see uh, some potential cryptocurrency focused uh, funds come out. Although those largely are dependent on whether the uh, cryptocurrency is tracked by a a regulated exchange uh, traded futures or not. So um, depending on the um, progress or evolution of whether regulated exchange traded uh, derivatives that track cryptocurrencies uh, are launched, I think that will largely determine what kind of fund products that we see get launched that track those futures. Um, I, it's interesting to see more traditional actively managed strategies uh, using the semi-transparent um, uh, um, disclosures that have been recently approved uh, with the ETF rule. Uh, by the SEC, uh, those are starting to come out that are perhaps addressing advisors' desire for actively managed strategies in an ETF form, perhaps for more sort of tax-efficient related reasons. Um, but I think I think the publicly traded marketplace has been uh, mostly adequately addressed for the most part. Maybe you know some nuances in the international markets. You could see some uh, potential products covering. Uh, areas outside of um, tr- what you would sort of consider traditional asset classes. 
Um, one area that I, that I think is lacking right now that I think the, the market could benefit from are sort of um, more nuanced uh, ESG-type of products covering companies beyond the largest capped area of the universe, especially outside the U.S., um, and and if ESG uh, as a movement, as an initiative, or driven by financial regulations like what you're seeing in Europe, really starts to determine how capital is accessed, how it is raised, um, and and what investors can do with their savings, then I think um, you really need to uh, expand the uh, transparency and lower the reporting costs and requirements to enable companies to more um, adequately report their ESG efforts kind of beyond those that you see with the largest companies. And Ben, just about a minute left here. Any thoughts on thematic ETFs? You know, this has been a hot space, a lot of product proliferation here. Are thematics something that uh, you use in a portfolio? I mean, we do use thematic-based ETFs in our global growth strategy and the ESG product, and, and these tied to certain themes. In ESG, for instance, we we focus on um, alternative energy and water infrastructure and global growth. We focus on infrastructure productivity type of themes like robotics. Um, those have been around for as long as Smart Beta, I think, has been around, and, and I think they're getting better, um, especially the fund providers that are using uh, natural uh, or natural language processing or other textual-based algorithms to kind of deliver um, a, a, a more dynamic thematic portfolio than just one based on static industry codes. Um, so I do think they can you know, p- play a place, but obviously as an ETF due diligence um, person has to adequately know what it is that they're investing in and be able to assess the risks with those portfolios. Well, Ben, again, uh, great to finally connect. We'll definitely have to do this again, but, but really enjoy the conversation. Thank you for joining me. Sure. Thanks again for having me. That was Ben Levine, Co-Chief Investment Officer at 3DL Capital Management. This podcast is supported by iShares. The shift to a low-carbon economy is changing the way people invest iShares Sustainable ETFs help you position your portfolio to manage sustainability-related opportunities and risks, such as climate change. Get your share of progress at iShares.com sustainable. Visit iShares.com to view a prospectus, which includes investment objectives, risks, fees, expenses, and other information that you should read and consider carefully before investing. Risk includes principal loss. There is no guarantee any fund will exhibit positive or favorable sustainability characteristics. Prepared by BlackRock Investments, LLC. I'm now joined by Wes Fulford, CEO of Veridi Funds, who back in July, they launched their first ETF, the Veridi Cleaner Energy Crypto Mining and Semiconductor ETF, ticker symbol RIGS, great ticker symbol, and pretty good timing. This ETF is already up over 60%. It just launched on uh, July 20th. Nice start. And Wes is now on the line with me. Uh, Wes, thanks for joining me this week. Uh, Yeah, excited to be here. Yeah, so we'll get to the ETF uh, in a moment, but I want to start with your background. You were previously CEO of BitFarms, a huge crypto miner. Talk about that experience, and then I'm also curious, how did you first get involved in uh, Bitcoin and crypto to begin with? Yeah, to start at the ground level, I guess um, I I began my career in in sort of traditional financial markets as uh, first in asset management out of school, and then uh, spent about a dozen years as an investment banker up here in Toronto for a couple of different banks. Um, most recently led the financial institutions and fintech practice for a bank here in Toronto. And uh, that's how I kind of first got exposed to Bitcoin in 2016. Lots of biz dev with you know new businesses attempting to go public in, in, the, in the markets up here in Canada, raise capital, M&A, all that wonderful stuff. So um, I, I took a keen interest and a hard look and, and deep dive in crypto back then, hung up my hat. In I guess it was January 2000 or, or February 2018 to uh, to join Bitfarms as CEO, a private company at the time, 
took it public uh, in Israel, a path that the founders had put us on, which was which is the wrong move for the company, um, and then quickly repatriated the listing back to the Canadian markets where we were um, headquartered and operated. So lots of you know wonderful learning experiences running a public company in this sector. Um, you know, great experience jumping into the sort of operational um, sort of prowess or, or uh, you know, uh, knowledge required to scale an industrial you know, crypto mining operation from high voltage electrical distributions, you know, staffing requirements, um, procuring hardware, uh, you know, capitalizing the balance sheet, all that wonderful stuff, and, and, and layer on the, the corporate governance and all that one all those wonderful things that sort of underpin uh, a public company. So, and, and here we are today. So launched, as you mentioned, rigs in on the NYSE about six or seven weeks ago. And yeah, had a, had a, had a great run so far. Um, you know, everybody that, that bought at 25 bucks on our first day of trading has done extremely well. And uh, the, the timing, timing couldn't have been better for, for a product like this. And so what's the backstory on the ETF? Where did that idea come from? And then I guess what made you decide to see it through? Because, you know, there are a lot of good ideas out there that never make it to market. Yeah, I, I think like, my, my agenda since since hanging up my banking hat three almost four years ago was to you know continue to try and marry an emerging sort of nascent marketplace being crypto uh, with with traditional finance and and hence sort of rigs this is a exchange traded fund focused on investing in primarily sustainable backed cryptocurrency mining operations most of our uh, the companies that we hold within the fund are, are headquartered in North America and listed on North American exchanges um, but you know we decided to focus on you know re- primarily renewable based uh, mining operations just you know, drawing upon my background frankly as, as CEO of, of Bitfarms, I think we can still uh, claim that that's the largest um, pure play renewable, 100% renewable based mining operations in the public markets, powered in uh, by hydropower in the province of Quebec. And, uh, you know, I think it's, it's important that, you know, boards, management teams pursue uh, operations in a sustainable manner as good corporate citizens, just given you know, the, all of the sentiment and, and pressure from shareholders and media about the carbon footprint of, of the Bitcoin network. So, you know, doing their part to continue adoption and, and, uh, you know, make, make their businesses and equities eligible for some of these ESG funds, et cetera. So, um, we, we launched it in, in July. This was, uh, uh, again, uh, a product that structured as an ETF. It's an active management strategy. We think, you know, leveraging our backgrounds and, and building models and you know, looking at comparable companies analysis and stock market valuations, et cetera, underpinned by our operational expertise. Um, I think it, it, there's some very evident mispricings in the public markets, which, which we are intending to sort of uh, capitalize on, uh, underweighting the, uh, the overvalued companies and, and overweighting the undervalued companies to, to, to run an active strategy that, that should be the traditional couch potato style investors attempts to, to allocate capital across the sector. Wes, you mentioned sort of this negative sentiment out there and the media pressure just around the environmental impact of crypto mining. How big of an issue is this? Because I feel like I do see a lot of debate. There's a lot of misinformation out there. And honestly, I think about something like uh, cloud computing, right, which obviously eats up a ton of energy, but you never hear anything about that. Why all the focus on crypto? Yeah, you never hear anything about the, uh, you know, carbon footprint of administering 180 fiat currencies uh, globally right. either. <laughs> it's it's uh, um, it, it's an easy target, and obviously, you know, Bitcoin uh, it's become a, a pretty significant, and sizable asset class at over two trillion across the sort of uh, leading cryptocurrencies and market cap. Um, but you know, I, I do think certainly in in the last. 12 to 24 months, there's been a meaningful and concerted attempt for management teams to scale using and leveraging renewable-based power operations. And when you look at just the consumption of the of the Bitcoin network, especially with this exodus of, of hash rate or computing power in China with some of the shutdowns locally that, that you were you, you heard the media in the media in June of this year, um, I think it's just 
a further benefit to the Bitcoin network as as a whole in terms of diversifying hash rate across across other geographies, and, and a lot of those um, jurisdictions are you know re- renewable based power. It's it's uh, when you when you marry uh, a remote based data center that can be built you know next to the hydropower dam itself uh, or stranded other stranded sources of energy. It's a, and, and some of those dams producing power 24 hours a day, seven days a week, 365 days a year, the Bitcoin mining uh, operation is the ideal consumer because they control or consume precisely the amount, same amount of power 24 hours a day, 365 days a year. So it's, it, and, and the, the dam owners themselves don't actually have to deal with the transmission costs of building infrastructure to move that power to other jurisdictions or the massive losses that occur in that process. So um, I do think the narrative is pretty tired and overdone. And when you look at any other major industrial sectors, the Bitcoin network itself pales in comparison in terms of its, you know, GHG emissions. It's actually quite a, quite of a, you know, sustainable based uh, network at this point. Well, let me ask you this. So even though this issue may be a bit overblown, obviously, you still thought it was important to offer an investment strategy and rigs that focused on the clean miners. So just to close the loop here, I mean, help me reconcile that. Like if the issue is overblown a bit, why do you think a strategy like this is needed in the market? Well, yeah, I think it's twofold. And, you know, doing our part again as, as good corporate citizens to marry, you know, ESG based products to uh, investors that are looking to um, you know, pursue sustainable investment strategies. And, and you know, one, hey, on the other side of the coin, there's just a you know, large pocket of capital that's been emerging certainly over the last several years in terms of ESG-specific funds. So, you know, opening up um, our, a product like ours uh, that, that would check the boxes internally for some of that capital. So, uh, and again, leveraging our experience um, building sustainable base mining operations, uh, it, it, it was uh, yeah, appropriate that our product was focused on those types of ops. And I, I guess just a couple of minutes left here. I'm sure you're aware, you know, this quote unquote uh, blockchain ETF space, whatever you want to call it, it's quickly become pretty crowded. Now, I think that's primarily because the SEC hasn't approved a Bitcoin ETF yet. And that's not to say there isn't investment merit in blockchain ETFs. I just wonder if we'd have as many as we do if the SEC had moved quicker on a Bitcoin ETF, which we can talk about that if you want. But my question is, how, how do you view the overall competitive landscape here? D- does the number of blockchain ETFs out there concern you at all? No, it doesn't. Um, you know, a couple of points you've raised there. Uh, first of all, like a Bitcoin or Ethereum ETF is very different than what we're doing. We're we're an actively managed ETF investing in equities that have already been blessed by the SEC or other principal regulators across the planet. So we're, we're not recreating a wheel here, but the, the intent of the product was to invest in the infrastructure that underpins this network, this ecosystem. You can't trade cryptocurrency without the miners providing the essential service that they do, which is creating blocks to warehouse transactions. And when, when a transaction finds its way into a block created by a miner, it becomes validated and verified and effectively cleared. So they're, they're that clearing agent um, for the network um, and, and incentivized by the network. It's actually quite elegant, and, you know, by design, especially given that pro- this protocol is a dozen years old. So, um, but we, we wanted to bring an infrastructure style product to this ecosystem just because, and, and the benefits of buying a miner are one, they're producing, you know, if they're, if they're running, you know, newer gen or mid gen equipment at reasonable price power, they're able to produce BTC at a significant discount to spot prices. I mean, we're seeing like 85% gross mining margins for some of these miners right now. Um, they've got leveraged torque to the underlying commodity per se, um, being, being BTC and, and, the, and when not to mention the growing treasury balances of digital assets as all of these miners inventorying as much as they produce or as, or as much as possible over the last, or certainly in 2021. So very different than a Bitcoin or, or digital asset ETF. I sit here in Toronto where there are publicly listed Bitcoin ETFs, Purpose and Evolve, you saw a list in February of, of 2021. I think uh, the regulators here being a little bit more open to um, sort of new, uh, new nascent products in the public markets. And uh, but but we're 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 different. Our product is different. It's a thematic, actively managed 
product, again, focused on the infrastructure in this, this, this ecosystem. And Wes, before I let you go, and, and because I can't help myself, I have to ask you, have you considered or uh, are you considering a Bitcoin ETF in the U.S.? I, you know, <laughs> I, I'm not going to I'm not going to rule it out, of course. Um, I mean, there's but but again, like we're uh, we, we've got some set very, very specific sectoral expertise and we're expanding our team. We're looking at our thematic style products in this ecosystem. You know, uh, a digital asset ETF could be part of that, but, uh, you know, working on uh, others, which are which you'll see uh, over the coming sort of uh, few quarters here. Well, congratulations on the launch of Riggs. Again, a great start performance-wise. Best of luck to you. Thank you for joining me this week. Thank you very much. That was Wes Fulford, CEO of Veridi Funds. That'll do it for this week's ETF Prime. As always, you can find me on Twitter, at Nate Geraci, or you can send comments through ETFprime.com. Next week, I'll be joined by Will Rind, founder and CEO of Granite Shares. We're going to discuss what's wrong with gold. Why isn't gold performing better? And we'll also talk broad commodities. And then Kai Wu, founder and CIO of Sparkline Capital, will spotlight his recently launched Intangible Value ETF. Until then, have a great week, everyone.